This Sunday ends the sermon series on uh, rest, and actually next week we begin a few weeks talking about the life of Samson. Um, but we're going to end very practically this morning. We're going to end talking about how to take a vacation. What do you pack when you go on vacation? What do you plan to do? You ever notice uh, the way your mind works when you're packing for a vacation? Uh, I think a lot of people do the same thing. Something similar to this, you put the suitcase on the bed, and then you start to kind of go through the list of, like, what might I do, the contingencies. Should, should there be rain? You think, yeah, I should pack a raincoat. Do I need to dress up? You know, yes, no. Um, will there be a pool while I go swimming? And you kind of go through your little scenarios, and you kind of accumulate what you need. But when we pack, we always try to pack appropriately. That's, that's one of the goals when you're, when you're going on vacation. You don't pack everything. In fact, you hardly pack anything. You leave almost all of your stuff at home, and you just take a a few suitcases. In fact, sometimes very little. In fact, it's amazing, may be in fact amazing to some of you still, how little you need when you go on vacation. Um, You don't really need that much. I I am a notorious underpacker. Uh, I never pack enough. Um, I'm one of those people who's constantly buying something when I get there. Uh, a funny story, when I was uh, uh, growing up, so I was the late, my late childhood, I was in high school, um, and my family, my parents decided to take us on a big family vacation, something that we had never really done, uh, at least kind of when, it, the old, when we got older. We hadn't done it in 10 years, maybe. And so we went to Disney World as a family, and it was a great time, and it was, uh, I mean, we just had a, a great time. Um, this is the years before Route 1. You remember those years when it was painful just to get to Dover? And we were driving. Some of you don't remember that. Oh, it was bad. We were driving, and we were down around Dover all the, to drive all the way down to Orlando. And my mom and my dad started to have that little exchange. It was, there was tension in the air. When my dad would say to my mom, you packed the black bag that was on the bed, right? And then she said, no, no, you packed the bag that was on the bed. Then it was that, no, you were supposed to pack the bag that was on the bed. No, you, turns out they left half their stuff in our, in their bedroom, sitting on the bed, and they had to stop at the, the outlets in Rehoboth, which may have been a big scheme by my mom in the first place, <laughs> but they had to stop at the outlets in Rehoboth, and they bought two outfits each. So my whole memory of Disney World is my dad in the flower shirt or my dad in the blue shirt. You could, by the end of the week, all of Disney World knew them. They were like costume characters because it was always the same outfit. And it, it just reminds us of how little we actually need. You know, they, they, they did a week. I actually think they've done this twice. So those of you who are close, you can query them. They're on vacation right now and they brought their stuff. But uh, they've done this twice. But it shows you how little we need to actually take on vacation. So the question is this morning, how much of Christianity do you take with you on vacation? What do you pack? What about God? Do you, do you leave it home when you go on vacation? But what actually makes it in the suitcase? And sometimes, there's some things we certainly leave at home. I think many people, when they go on a vacation, they don't go to church, unless you're going to winter down in Florida or something like that. 
you, on your Sunday, you just you spend it as a day of rest, but with your family doing whatever you want. But, but, but uh, you know, there's some things we leave at home. You, we, you don't bring the, the praise team with you. you. You don't go to Bible study, most likely. There's things we leave, which in their own way seem maybe appropriate. But what do you bring? What do you bring? What does the Bible tell us to do on vacation? That's a hard one. I searched the word and could find no chapter on vacation. In the law, there's no place in Leviticus on when you go on vacation. I could find nowhere in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where it says, and Jesus turned to the crowd while on vacation and said. It just doesn't happen. He, he, you know, some people, some people are kind of, Jesus never did this stick in the mutters. Jesus never went on vacation. Jesus never did a lot of things that we do. Um, but he didn't go on vacation. I've looked for the parable on vacation. And the closest I could find was the prodigal son, which I do not recommend <laughs> as a template for vacation. It ends poorly. Uh, so don't do that. That's not a teaching on vacation. That's a parable of bigger things. You know, even, even when you're searching for context, and by the way, I'm building for you a kind of a model of when you're trying to figure out what, this, what the word Lord wants to say about an idea, you kind of go, well, what is the chapter on it? And if you can't find that, and you say, was there a saying about it or a parable about it? And there's, you know, almost nothing. And then you go, well, is there even a context? The context of the Bible where you can say, well, this context kind of informs our understanding of a vacation. And there's very little of that. The vacation, as you and I understand it, who did this back then? It's very rare. You would have to think maybe some Roman elite. Some people might grow up their whole life in a village. Now there is, though, there is some context, very little but some, and this does matter, I think. These big holidays or festivals of the year that are talked about in Scripture, the Hebrew people were expected three times a year to leave their homes and travel and go to Jerusalem to celebrate that was, that was a vacation of sorts. They're packing, they're leaving, they're going somewhere, and they're not working, and they're having a festival. That's, that's kind of the basic elements of a vacation. And, and they seem to have had, I mean, the, imagine, it was a good celebratory time. There was a lot of kind of having fun going on. It must have been fun at some times, because here's an example. This is how you know that they had fun. Mary and Joseph, okay, they're returning home from Jerusalem after one of these big celebrations, and they forgot their son. People. That must have been fun. I mean, you're halfway home, and you realize that you forgot the Messiah of the globe. You, you cannot go to an outlet for that. So there must have been, right, there must have been a, a big family reunions. This is one of the few times that all the people from the scattered tribes would come together and you'd see distant uncles and aunts and, you know, a lot of celebration. You might imagine that Jesus was just in a larger group of family. And so they were thinking, oh, yeah, he's back with my cousin or so-and-so playing with the other kids. It was a large kind of celebration, that sort of thing. So there is some context in Scripture for this kind of thing, but very little, in fact, the Bible feels awkwardly silent about a vacation. 
So does that mean God is silent on vacation? Well, no. The Bible is very often silent on situations or issues of detail. Right? It is very often that there's an issue that rises up. What, what kind of job does the Lord have in store for you? The Bible is silent on that. What should we do about DNA cloning? Well, the Bible is directly silent on that. And there many things in our life. What does the Bible say about intermittent windshield wipers? It's silent on that. What we have to do is we have to assemble by the contexts and the other teachings and the overarching spirit of the, of the scriptures, we piece by piece begin to kind of establish a position on things. And that's what we have to do about vacation, right? The Bible is specifically silent on it, but the Bible is not silent on the things that happen on vacation. In fact, if you want to know what the Bible really speaks to, most of the time, overwhelmingly, the Bible is really only, is, is talking about two main ideas. The first is God. Who is he and what has he done for you? And the second is your relationships. Your relationships to God and your relationships to others. That's the Bible. And that, those ideas, certainly exist on a vacation. God is there. You are there. And you're in relationship. And so while the Bible doesn't specifically talk about exactly what to do on a vacation or exactly how to go on a vacation, it does talk about broader issues that inform. Let me just show you some of these broad passages. Here's one in Colossians. These are kind of overarching broad passages that, in fact, should shape the way we go on vacation. And we pray this, is what Paul is writing this in the book of Colossians. We pray this in order that you might live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way on vacation. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might so that you might have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. These are overarching ideas about who we should be in Christ that should in fact manifest themselves at all times and in all places regardless of the situation. It's said a little bit differently here in Thessalonians, a little more succinctly. Paul writes, Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This was read earlier this morning. I mean, at some level, that's all you've got to do on vacation. I mean, it's not like that's it as though it's not much. It's, that's it as though it's kind of general. That we don't have the specific teachings on what we're supposed to do, but we have these overarching things that inform us. While we're on vacation, we ought to be bearing fruit with every good work. We ought to be growing in our knowledge of God. We ought to be being strengthened by Him so that we might have great endurance and patience. And we might always, in all circumstances, be giving thanks to Him who has made us to share in the kingdom of light. That should continue, regardless of our circumstances. Sometimes, actually, when the Bible gives us detailed, when it does consider your circumstance or your situation, it gives you detail, it can actually mess you up if you don't have these big ideas right. I, had a, uh, I have a, this friend of mine, he's become a friend of mine. Whenever I'm at Loma, he comes in. He's a solid Christian young man, and he always wants to talk about the Bible. And so I sit there, and whatever I'm, you know, he kind of, with his coffee, peers over, and 
we have about a 10 or 15 minute conversation every morning I'm there. And so we're talking about this, this message this week and about how, you know, at the time I was worded with, I'm in trouble because the Bible doesn't say anything about vacation, was how it sounded then. But we got to talking about how detailed or undetailed the Bible is. And he said, you know, there's a place actually where people miss, they miss the point of God for the details. And he mentioned Matthew 23. When Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, he says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. What the Lord is saying is, is you've missed the big idea, and so you've made even your following of the details uh, a stench in the nostrils of God. In fact, it almost echoes this, this passage, which many of you are familiar of, in Micah. You know, he has shown you, O oh man, what the Lord desires of you, but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. That passage, it's almost as though Jesus conjures it up in the 23rd chapter of Matthew. He says, you've neglected the important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. It's almost as though he's saying to the Pharisees, you just needed to follow Micah, and you would have been doing just fine, but you've perverted my truth by putting the details in front of the big principles. 2 Peter says it this way. Look with me here on the third verse. I'll read 3 to 9. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Do you see that? It says his divine power has given us what? Everything we need for this life. Not in a material sense. God has not given you everything you need for life. He's not thinking of equipping you materially here. He's not thinking of jobs and houses. He's saying God's given you everything you need in life to make decisions and navigate through this life. The way you make decisions and follow God, that you've been prepared in that sense by the Lord. He says, through these things he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. We can participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world through what he's given us here. And he says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. The Bible's concern is not so much, what are you going to do on a vacation? The Bible's concern is, is that you add kindness to godliness and love and that you are constantly joyful and that you're forever praying and that you give thanks in all circumstances and that you're bearing good fruit and that you're growing in the knowledge of God. These general ideas have to inform the particulars of a vacation. And so 
at some level, like if you have to leave in the next minute and you want to know what to do on vacation, it's you do on vacation what you do here. God's expectations are every bit the same. On the other hand, vacations are different than here is. Right? It's a different kind of situation. And some, some of the rules change on vacation. And so while God's general teachings should inform, what we're going to allow is these general kind of ideas to inform the unique situations of a vacation and, and see maybe if there's some ways that we can approach vacation in a special way. And so that's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a list of four, kind of four perspectives on vacation based upon some of these, these broader teachings. That's what we're going to do this morning. So here's the first one. Vacation is a great opportunity to give the Lord special glory. If you're wondering, how is a vacation different? I would say vacation could be different in the sense that it's an excellent opportunity to give the Lord special glory because it's what you're doing is special and it's a gift from God. If, if you're on a vacation that costs your family $2,000, where did that $2,000 come from? Did you really make it? Or is it the provision of God? There ought to be a place. There ought to be a place on a vacation of that sort where you and your family or your friends or whoever you're with, you can pause and stop and give thanks to the Lord for his provision. That he's he's made this possible. That there are people all around us who cannot afford to do what you may be doing. Stop and give thanks to the Lord for what he's done. That's an opportunity to give special glory to the Lord. What about your friends and relationships and all the things that you share together, the memories you carve out on vacation? That You ought to be able to give thanks to the Lord for these opportunities, these, these times in your mind where you think, I don't want to ever forget how this looks right now with my family or the situation. These are great times to come before the Lord with thankfulness, not just you in the quiet while you're driving back, but you as a family. To be able to, in front of your children, or with your spouse, or with your friends, to say, God has allowed us to join together. That's kind of him. He loves us. The opportunity to rest is a gift. And for that, the Lord deserves special thanks and praise. And his, his creative power you know, oftentimes on vacations, we go to places that are pretty neat, but that you can't really live there. You go, you go to the Grand Canyon, or you go to Alaska, or you go on a cruise, or you go to the Caribbean, or you go to the mountains, or you go to Adirondacks, or the Rockies, or you go skiing at Vail, or wherever it is, these big things. You go to Montana. You go to all these wonderful places that we don't live, but God's made them, and he's carved them out of the earth, and he's set them in their place. These are times for you to give the Lord special praise and worship. These are great moments where you realize all that the Lord's done that's beyond our eyes. I mean, there's been times in Alaska where I felt like I am the only person who has ever stood in this place in the history of mankind. I once heard a statistic in Alaska that one-third of one percent of Alaska has been touched by humans. When it's that big... How easy is it to say, thank you, God, 
when something is that big and that beautiful and that deep and that wide. The heavens proclaim the glory of the Lord and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. The psalmists encourage us at these times that we're in, the, in, the, in these places not to forget the God who made them. And these ways can take what might otherwise be a very secular vacation and might elevate them so that you haven't forgotten to pack the Lord with you. It's the first idea, the idea of the opportunity to give the Lord special glory. Here's the second one. Vacations are an opportunity to embrace reflection, the chance for reflection. You know, oftentimes in our daily lives and routines, we say, well, we really don't have time for that quiet time, or you always want to read that book, but, or you would go and study the Bible, however, because you're busy, and there's this, and there's that, and there's this, and there's that. Well, vacations, by their very nature, extract us out of all of those things, which were the bedrock of our excuses for not doing what we said we wanted to do, which was to grow closer to the Lord and to be still and know that He's God and to kind of invest time in prayer and to listen and hear and all of these sorts of things. Vacation is a beautiful stage for this to happen. So long as you don't bring your Blackberry or the things of your routine life that continue the madness if you, if you, vacation is an opportunity to reflect. It is not going to create reflection. You can go on a vacation and have very much the same kind of noise and busyness that we have right here in daily life unless you intentionally carve it out, which means you'll have to say, you'll ha- if you want to have a time of stillness with the Lord, which is a good thing, and if you're going to be at the beach for a week, why not do this? Why not say, why not say ahead of time, you need to do this, at a time, say to you, your friend or your spouse or whoever, you know, on Wednesday morning, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go for a walk. I just want to be with the Lord. Now, if you say that far enough ahead of time, you're not going to crimp anyone's style. If you say that, like, Tuesday night, your wife may say, well, then who's getting the kids up? You know, so, so plan these things out and, and, and carve them out. If you're not a morning person, sunset, evening walks, whatever it is, vacation is a stage to offer you a time for reflection. Maybe even read a book. A good book. That's number two. Here's number three. Vacation is a time of rest in God, not a time of rest from God. There's a difference. There's a difference between rest and idleness, though they're close together. We need to guard against Idleness. Remember, vacations are different than regular life, which means the enemy is at work in different ways, and your, many of the things that you're actually escaping from in your routine life are things that keep you safe. A lot of times we talk about letting go and going somewhere, where there's a lot of things in your daily life that are there for your protection. You know, when you're busy, you can't get in trouble. When you, you go to the same settings and you have the habit patterns and the old worn paths, these things are all good. But when you go on vacation and everything's different, well, now there are different opportunities, both for the Lord to work and for the world to work. And we see that. Every time you go to a vacation spot, you find decadence sitting right beside beauty. Opportunities to slip right, beside, right beside opportunities to praise the Lord. It's because it's different. And many of the things that you normally trust on to keep you safe aren't there. So be in mind, when you let your hair down, 
you are posturing yourself on a slope. Whenever we kind of, when we do that, when things start getting let down, we're already placing ourselves. We're no longer in an objective place. We're not on a flat plane. We're on a slope that can get slippery. Because when we let our hair down and when we relax, it's very easy to let our guard down and to let things down that should never stop working. Remember, we should never shirk away from the labor of God, holiness towards the Lord. We don't rest from God. We don't escape the tasks of being godly when we're on vacation. And yet this, this invariably happens. My other life, growing up in, in the service, you could watch this. Very rarely in all of my years has the morning after produced people who were on a slope towards holiness. I'm just saying, as the night wears on, rest turns into revelry. We know this. Never in my life have I gone to my buddy's room in the morning and he wakes up and he's tired and he's groggy and you can tell there's pain and you say, well, what happened last night? And he'll say, oh, well, you know, we started out at dinner and then we went here and there and next thing you know it broke out in this great game of Pictionary. That doesn't happen. It's a different slope. Just guard yourself on the trajectory that happens. When we do adopt a spirit of rest, oftentimes idleness is right there beside us. And holiness is work. Holiness is constant labor. It should be restful labor. It should be joyful labor. But it's labor. Paul writes this in Colossians. He says, To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. That's what the Christian is. is We labor, struggling with all his energy, even while on vacation, We labor, struggling with his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Which means, while you're on labor, if you're in an elevator, and there's an opportunity to share the gospel, should we not share the gospel? If we're we're walking along, or if we strike up a conversation with with an attendant at dinner, should we not seize the opportunity to kind of grow some kind of bridge of trust or faith so we can share the Lord in those circumstances? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, number four. Finally, recognize that you are experiencing a simulated paradise. This is probably true at at some level on all vacations, but it's especially true for those of you or those times when you take a fancy vacation, the vacation where you open the brochure and it talks, actually use the word paradise or tranquility or idyllic or indulgence. When you open that, when the brochure of your vacation says that, you need to recognize that you are going to a simulated paradise. It's fake. It's not really paradise. Which means, A, it is short-lived. It's going to come to an end. And so the system is, by itself, it's a fleeting moment that you're going to experience. And in fact, you are relying on it being short-lived. You know, the only difference between a beautiful private beach on a private island and being a castaway is time. That's it. It's a beautiful private beach as long as you know that you can get up and leave. It could be the same thing, and you could watch the ship sink, and now you're panicking. Because this false paradise is short-lived. It's 
it's fake. And in fact, you're not even in an honest relationship with the surrounding environment you're in, right? You're enjoying this, this native land and this private beach and so on and so forth. But behind you is a cabana waiting to serve you dinner. Like, you're not making dinner. These things are falsely injected to make it feel like it is a paradise. Because on this planet, there is no paradise. It has been removed from us. And it is healthy for us, in our understanding of vacation, to know that that we should not be trying to seek that which is not. We can kind of embrace things in part that are, this is... This may be what God, this may have been what it was like for Adam and Eve. But we should appreciate that that is, it's not real. We're not really entitled to it. And, and when it happens, it's short-lived. In addition to being short-lived, it's also propped up artificially. There's energy being injected into that system to make it feel like a paradise for you. Because there is no paradise. And so typically, the fancier it is for you, the harder somebody else is working. Somebody who, though they may not make the money to go on the vacation, is every bit as special to God. God loves them every bit as much. He knows them every bit as much. So guard your spirit because you're in a fake paradise. And the people, the people are no less or no more qualified to be stand before the Lord than you are. What I would say to this is when you're on one of these fancy times um, and you kind of detect a crack in the picture that you were wanting, like my wife and I, we went on a cruise a few years ago and our window in our room, we were almost below the waterline on the cruiser. So our window had to be like up. And it stared out the back because we were over the motors. And, you know, that's not what I imagined. I thought I'd have a deck. And, you know, be able to wave at the people. But I had, like, this airtight window two feet above waterline, it felt like. You know, when those cracks in your picture show up, try to remind yourself that they're showing up because there is no paradise. They're showing up because it's artificial. And that at least alleviates some of the hardship of your expectation. Plus, have you ever noticed in a hotel or wherever, they want you to see the ocean and the sea and the tropics because... They don't want you to see, and you don't want to see, the town on the other side that is making your hotel possible. And oftentimes when we see this as Christians, we enter this kind of spiral of decisions. Because there's like this immediate, ooh, do I feel guilty because I'm in this nice hotel outside of this, this kind of impoverished town? And then you kind of deal with, well, actually this hotel is sustaining this town in some way. And so then you're like, so it's good that I'm here. And you kind of begin to, this is your time to reflect on your vacation, right? And you're kind of reflecting, it's good that I'm here, and you're like, yeah, but I didn't really think about this, which is bad, so I'm guilty now, because I wasn't even thinking about it. And you're like, but now I'm thinking about it. So now what I'm going to do, here's what you do. You recognize, it's, those issues are complex issues. Recognize that you're in a simulated paradise, and that people matter. And see the whole picture. Don't allow yourself to be fooled by the space in which you've paid to live. The world is broad, and God wants us to see this. Right in Second Peter, he says, those who do not do this are nearsighted and blind. That's what we do when we try to buy into this false paradise. 
which kind of raises this idea of, of the way that even this life is short-lived and artificial. There's, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, our lives are but tents. We live in tents on earth awaiting our home in heaven. This is the way he talks. There's a sense that the same things that's true when you go to the Bahamas and you're staying at Atlantis, and you're thinking, this is a short-lived, artificial scenario. Well, so is this life. This life is a short-lived, artificial scenario. And for those of us who are being saved, the beauty of it is, is that this life is a fairly unimpressive version of the eternal one to come. But the challenge of the Christian life is to not to seek to make a paradise before its time. Some of us can invest all of our energy into escaping the pain and, and the wrongness of this world when God says, in fact... Live a holy, godly life now, and I'll bring you into my eternal rest then. That he might give us great endurance and patience. Patience for what? Patience to await his paradise and his rest. Not patience to achieve it now. That he might add to godliness perseverance. Perseverance for what? Perseverance so that we might now engage with the real world now, so that in time we might be brought into his eternal rest in heaven. For the Christians, we always are going to be tempted to kind of be blinded by the darkness around us so that we, we don't experience our own fallenness because everybody's fallenness is a commentary on everybody's fallenness. And we don't want to see that. That's why we drive to work certain ways. That's why we don't go certain places. But it is still there. And we still have to respond to it. But praise be to God that for the believer... This short-lived artificial world is the worst you will receive. This is hell for the Christian. For those of you who are not Christian, who do not, who have not received the, the atoning love of Jesus Christ, who haven't turned to Him and confessed your sins and desired that He would become Lord and Savior, for those of you who kind of stand out and look at this, whether it's just you're curious or you're a seeker or you have questions or you're noncommittal or you, you, the terms bother you or for some reason you decided you're just not ready to call yourself Christian and therefore you're not becoming a Christian, I'm here to say that this you should enjoy this world as much as possible because it is a short-lived artificial paradise for you. This is as good as it gets. And at some point, the Lord will place it to an end where he will withdraw the warmth of the sun and he will remove, it, he will remove you from himself and all the, artificially, all the artificial blessings that you received, which were because of the mercy of Christ and because of the blessings of Christ, those things will be withdrawn and you'll be placed in the coldness of the absence of God. In either perspective, this is not really a time of rest for the soul. We should labor to enter into God's rest. This is a time. This is a time to give God special glory. And this is a time for reflection. And this is a time to rest in God and not to rest from God because it's short-lived and it's artificial.